Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week was Kim Stanley Robinson, the acclaimed science fiction author who wrote Ministry for the Future, which has been met with rave reviews all around the world. Ministry for the Future is like the climate Bible. In it, Stan lays out a path essentially from the middle of the crisis, uh, which he envisioned to be five years in the future from when he was writing it in 2019, to a sustainable future. Um, And that doesn't mean a utopia where everything is fixed, but essentially where this time, this generation fix everything that they can. It is an incredible piece of work. You must all go out and read it. It combines everything that we know about the climate crisis. All of the science, the biosphere of ecosystems, ice sheets. It combines everything we know about economies, so neoliberalism and post-Keynesian economics. It is equally a meditation on democracy and politics and representation, on globalization, on industry, on public over private. It is just a phenomenal piece of work. And I'm so grateful to uh, have been able to get him on the show. So we discuss Ministry of the Future, of course. We also discuss the role of storytelling, the role of science fiction, and what kinds of stories we need to be saying in order to engender the kind of action that Stan lays out in his book that will be necessary to combat the climate crisis. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. Stan, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. I'm so excited to speak with you. Uh, My pleasure, Rachel. We made it. (laughs) We made it. So you are a science fiction author. You have recently written a whole cli-fi which is a a new sort of genre that's appearing climate fiction um could you tell me a little bit about how you got into writing novels actually before we get into sort of the main plot points of of your work sure um you have to go back a long way please do uh well i was always a reader and this was true in my childhood to a, a very marked degree and so I tried it and found it uh, was harder than it looked and <laughs> gave up. And then when I was an undergraduate, I ran into science fiction. I started writing science fiction short stories. And that was um, um, easier, just being shorter. And I seemed to have some ideas. And I started selling short stories as science fiction. It was a place where you could um, make a little bit of money and have a readership. And Mm -hmm. so it went from um, short stories that kept getting longer. And finally, uh, I was ambitious to do novels because of uh, loving them so much. So that's a long time ago, undergraduate years. It's 50 years ago. 
that I started. And my first novel came out in 1984, a nice year for science fiction. <laughs> and I've been doing it ever since. Um, I taught, I taught freshman composition at the college level for a decade or so when I was young. And then when my wife and I had our first child, I became a, a house husband, a Mr. Mom, um, took care of the kids. She's a hardworking chemist and was away working. So that was home life for another couple decades. <laughs> they just keep mm -hmm. rolling by. And I've always uh, been writing novels. So when I finish one, I start another one. And it's a, Oh, it's, really? not just, it's not just a job. It's a, it's more of a, a habit of mind, I guess. I mm. like, I like to be in the middle of one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So hang on, how long do you give yourself in between? Or is it like the war of art, that advice by Stephen Pressfield? Like if you finish something the next day, you start something. Oh no, I'm not that. Um, no, I would say anywhere between about a month to uh, six months between um. books. It depends on where I was in the year, whether it was summer and I was off in the mountains or in my wife's place in Maine or, or if I was under deadline hmm. or if I was doing a couple of times, and this is silly to admit, but a sequel, um, the Mars trilogy, the Washington DC trilogy, both those times I was, I pretty much finished one and started the next just cause hmm. I was, I wasn't really done. Yeah, 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 yeah. Understood. So, what kind of themes were you exploring in your earlier works? Well, very early on, I, as a science fiction writer, I got interested in a zone that I thought was um, fun to explore, and I didn't see a whole lot of it. And so, I have to divide science fiction up into near future, like day after tomorrow, um, and then far future, like space opera, mm -hmm. and the in between zone, um, maybe a century out, two centuries out. And staying within the bounds of what could really be done. So a kind of a realism, uh, sort, at least of uh, a feeling of realism. Uh, so that meant the solar system. So um, these are in my very first stories. People are zipping around the solar system and going from station to station and even terraforming some of the planets as if this was possible in a kind of a story space. So it was a, an examination of history as spread out through our solar system. Well, this is a kind of a middling zone that you don't see a whole lot of. And so it was my particular space for many of my books. No, And I, this was not theorized until much later. I didn't really think about it in those terms when I was doing it. I just thought, these are interesting stories. Could you, I mean, what can I say? Could you surf, could you surf a... Uh, some cold substance, liquid, uh, liquid methane um, waves on the surface of one of Jupiter's moons or some such um, craziness. Um, so I had a, a, a sort of physical a feeling about that space that made it interesting to me. I don't really know why that happened, but that was an early concern. So, okay, then when you terraform Mars which is the obvious thing to do if, that, if you're in that story zone. Uh, that brings in wilderness, uh, created wilderness, utopian thinking, like, can we make a better society? It was an everything space for me. And so wilderness and utopia, this was how I used to conceptualize it in the early 90s. This is like before climate change kind of 
um, smacked me. I was early. No, that's not quite true. I was earlier than a lot of people, but climate change fiction was being written from the 1960s, but it wasn't really being regarded as a thing that really was happening. It was just one possibility amongst others. We could have an ice age, we could have a hot spell. You know, it wasn't um, set as an already ongoing process. But I went to Antarctica in 95 after I finished the Mars Trilogy and every, all the scientists down there were talking about climate change and I began to write about it then mm. uh, in a, a more systematic way. So the first really, uh, oh. my plunge into it was 40 Signs of Rain. Before we get into the climate change, yeah. Um, which yeah. will obviously dominate um, the rest of the interview, I'd be cu very curious to know more about prior to becoming aware of the, the importance and the impact of climate change, what did a utopian society look like? What were those themes that you were exploring? What were the problems? What did you highlight as the main, as the main issue that your science fiction societies had solved for? Well, that's a good question. And um, it's interesting because I think the solutions still apply in the climate changed world. It was simply um, leftism uh, socialism, anti-capitalism. So utopia would be when you didn't have the 1%, when you didn't have um, a few people running corporations taking over the political system, where you had um, either true democracy or else good political representation one way or another. Um, so this is um, all of the classic left solutions, public over private, the communal over the individual, um, um, cooperatives, worker empowerment, um, gender equality, end of patriarchy, end of capitalism. This was really the focus. And you can see that in the March novels. So um, I still think all those goals are quite valid and, and actually unrealized. Weirdly, I began writing at about the same time as the neoliberal turn. Uh, Thatcher and Reagan were a complete shock to those of us who had um, struggled against the Vietnam War and thought that the 70s were the story of an increasing leftism. We were wrong about that and not paying attention to the actual halls of power. So my utopian writing career has been exactly the, the coterminous with neoliberalism. So the more I wrote about it, the less it seemed to be happening. So <laughs> um, it, it's um, it's nice to see. Well, this isn't the right way to put it. It's more than nice. It's it, it confirms uh, a lot of people's suspicions and thoughts that neoliberal uh, kind of hyper capitalism has been bad for people, bad for the biosphere. And now we've got to change because the biosphere is going down. That's going to be good for all of us in the end if we do it. it yeah, if. <laughs> yeah. I think um, the the science fiction hyp hypothetical or story that I harp on a lot um, about on this podcast is the potential for like a biosurfdom. So mm. the elites, yeah rather than this sort of like fake democracy whereby the global north get access to most of the resources, just the people that have that access will increasingly diminish until it is very much just the 1% and everybody else is mutually sort of exploited. 
and extracted um, in order to feed their appetite. Um, it's just not dissimilar to what we see already. Yeah. I've heard this called eco-fascism, but I like a bio-serfdom as a description from the other end. And also fascism isn't exactly the right yeah. word. I, I understood eco-fascism as like when governments will deploy like eco-nativist policies. So they will think about sustainability, but only within their own borders. Whereas I think this bio-serfdom idea would be, I mean, really revealing the ruling class to be what they are and for it to be more about private interests rather than national sovereignty. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Uh, that would be the... I have been very convinced by people who are saying that the world is, um, uh, the ruling of the world is contested between the state and finance as two mm -hmm. giant powers, but that these two are completely entwined with each other, um, hand in hand, but arm wrestling for control. Mm -hmm. So um, I like that. I think that's accurate enough to give us some handles on the situation uh, or some cognitive maps to understand it so that from what you're saying you're you're focusing in on the finance side of it the one percent the people with riches and then the state system is just something they manipulate wow. and then eco-fascism eco would be the reverse the state I mean, system imposing their yeah. the old nation state borders which of course when it's the biosphere itself is a silly thing to try yeah yeah exactly i think um as we are seeing increasingly, I mean, the United Kingdom, and the United States are just so painfully neoliberal and now fairly transparent. I think especially with that dip that we had with trusts and quartang in this country, which really revealed, and, and even Boris, just how power actually works and how the powerful exist to serve a different kind of powerful that we don't get to see too much of, um, and the symbiosis of those relationships. Certainly, like the conservative, the neoliberal conservative party is doing everything that can to just chip away and erode at the national government. And what for, if not to sell it off to their their cohort, their their friends, their community? Um, so I think it's it is more likely, I think, to go in that direction. I think we could see in other nations um, an eco fascism, but ultimately, I mean, neither of these things will will work right and it would be very interesting to actually see a kind of um conflict interesting it'd be terrible but in it, perhaps written out as a novel it'd be really interesting to see the tussle between eco-fascists and um bio lords say yeah well that might be the story of our time in some ways um but uh, once they're revealed it's it's going to be an interesting uh, time one uh, say that the neoliberalism has been um, named diagnosed and revealed to be profoundly destructive and indeed it's impossible that it can go on then you need a new system and uh, it won't be well it could be eco-fascism but that's again the hand in glove or the two hands together arm wrestling for control again that's a powerful small group of people trying to control the fate of of billions of people and as you pointed out it's mostly global north and the the world may not stand for it um, there is a still ultimately well this is a maybe a statement to ponder not sure it's true but 
even if money is concentrated in the 1% to an astonishing degree, uh, people power still matters. Um, revolution is still possible or an overthrow of the system by either legal or, or violent means, um, depends on how skillfully it's done and what it consists of. In other words, once you know what's going on, there's no inevitability at all about it. You could change the system. I agree with you that there is hope for change. Um, There must be, right? Otherwise, there's no point in having these kinds of conversations. However, I disagree that once you name a thing, it can be deconstructed. Because I think you mentioned 1984 at the very beginning. I mean, what is so powerful about that novel is that it reveals that once a, a group has control over language and fractures another group's relationship to language, then they can control essentially hegemony. They control the past and they control the future. And I think what is so frightening about this age is we have so much access to information. Yes, there is a lot of disinformation, but then that is fracturing our relationship to what we know to be true. I mean, people talk about neoliberalism, certainly my Twitter timeline. (laughs) Everybody talks every day about capitalism, about neoliberalism, about this um, impossible relationship with the biosphere that humanity has created. And yet naming the thing doesn't seem to have any power because people seem to have lost faith in what a name is or what what language is in this post-truth age. Or perhaps also even that the powerful have now managed to accumulate so much power that they don't have to pretend to exist in the same games in the way that they once did. I mean, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump are two incredible examples of that, of the clown becoming boss. And how do I put this? And like the clown becoming boss and rather than removing his makeup to reveal the terror underneath, you realize he is only makeup. And there is just no way to interact with that, that thing. Um, no matter what you say about them, no matter what you flag, no matter what is revealed to be truth, they just will not leave because nothing is true or sacred to them. Yes, I see what you're saying. And um, it certainly has been that way. So, and there is the, the problem you're describing, the, the overflow of information and the, the disappearance of any shared consensus reality that can be argued over, et cetera, et cetera. It's true only up to a point. I mean, once you leave the world of social media and you go out into the world itself, you've got drought, you've got dying trees, you've got um, a biosphere collapse happening that can't be, well, it can be denied, of course. So it becomes, I think what you're talking about here is uh, essentially ideology or my, my teacher, Jameson, he talks about cognitive mapping. Can you tell a story that provides a cognitive map that gives clues to action? So in, say in the UK and the US, we've got this um, cover story, the rule of law, and democracy or representative government. And we've got parliament, we've got Congress. They're setting laws. So in a way, when the oligarchs buy the politicians and the politicians go in and, and pass laws that support the oligarchs, that's a good description of how things are happening now or have been in the 
neoliberal era. But as the biosphere goes down, you, you could seize that very system. And instead of having some hypothetical um, violent revolution that might wreck everything and we don't have much time for it, you could imagine, uh, let's just put it as forth as an imaginary science fiction story, um, putting in power politicians who immediately nationalized the banks or immediately set up progressive taxation so intense um, or or do government stimulus spending on people and on the planet in ways that are legislated so that the biggest company of all, which is the government, is suddenly throwing its weight behind these better causes. In a way, this is Keynesianism. So it's not a very profound revolution, but in our moment of history, Keynes is a leftist and is a solution to neoliberalism, government seizing the economy um, for the good of all. And so the analogies are like World War II. Yeah. Well, the UK is a great example. In World War II, getting bombed, you have to win the war. The government simply takes over the entire economy. And indeed, the treasury, the British treasury goes to the Bank of England, which is some weird public-private combinatoire that is very much influenced by big money, by, by the 1%, just goes to the Bank of England and says, sorry, we, we're taking over now. You are not capable of making the decisions that we need to make to win this war. So... Now, climate change is different than World War II, although the damage might add up to about the same. And it isn't, uh, it, it doesn't get people's attention in the way that bombs falling on your head will get your attention. But the news of the disasters is out there as a daily drumbeat, and the mechanism still exists. In other words, uh, a, 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 a left party with some guts which maybe the UK and US don't really have, but they might be dragged that way, uh, the Labour Party, the, the Democratic Party, to have, for them to become more um, eco-conscious, more, uh, more uh, for the people rather than for the oligarchs, to provide a progressive alternative that was real, win some elections, change some laws, and maybe uh, tip the balance. So this is a story I'm telling. I understand even as I say it that it's 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 um discounting enormously powerful forces that would have to be overcome. Um but I don't see any other story to tell that is as convincing to me that it could really happen and do good things. Yeah. I I agree. Um and I think that there is a lack of positive narrative or a positive potential. Um, there is, how do, there's sort of a, a constant disempowering of the people, despite the fact that we are more empowered than ever before and increasingly so every day. Um, that is a great privilege that must be harnessed. But I think even though the facts of climate change are present and they're even in the news on a daily basis now, I think that the reason that it's quite difficult to interact with them as opposed to interacting with the devastation that was being wrought by World War II is a war, <laughs> the destruction of a war is like the physical manifestation of the ideology of the hegemony that drives society. Um, which everyone agrees upon and everyone agrees to be subject to in order to win or in order to fight. Whereas the cognitive dissonance of climate change is 
we're feeling physical effects of our human of our human systems and yet we were never told or, or people don't like to talk about the fact that it is our human systems that are causing those physical effects and so it's it's hard to map the ideology onto the the physical reality unless you actually want to understand that your ideology is fundamentally flawed and incorrect so it's quite it's like it's dialectic almost mm -hmm. um and unless you want to sit down and be educated by people who are much more intelligent than you and have been thinking about this for a lot longer or read everything that you can get your hands on it's just um, the mental gymnastics to get there are really demanding so even maybe and I've never thought about this before. I'm just spitballing, but I completely agree with you that we need that positive story. And we're going to talk about ministry for the future because I loved it. Mm. Um, but maybe we also need like a bridging story in order to get people to understanding that that moment of understanding, that place of understanding that that kind of revolution needs to happen. Yeah, because that's what, where I think we're what we're missing right now. Well, that's interesting. That would be the. I, I mean, I deliberately started Ministry for the Future. At the time I wrote it, it was probably about five years in the future that the story began. And really what you're saying is that the, we need the story of now. What do we do right now? And I would agree with you. I mean, I only offer the analogy of World War II knowing that historical analogies are inherently weak and that we're in a new story now that is really quite unprecedented. So the analogies are weaker than ever. Um, they can only point to, well, what do analogies do? You know, a, a to B is like C to D. Well, there's so many ways to knock that apart. A is not really like C, B is not really like D, and so on and so forth. And also the, the movement isn't the same either. So analogies are almost useless, but not quite. They're suggestive of the, what mechanisms still remain. And then you have to go to some kind of macro level and say, well, we've still got governments. There are laws that if you break them, you go to jail. And it's a creaky, um, outrageously baroque and complex system with a lot of stupidity built in. And it can be bought at a, or screw up, but it can definitely be bought at the top. The decision makers can be, in essence, uh, bribed or coerced into doing what the powers that be say. So, yeah, we st but we still have government and we still uh, believe in money. Um, the, the, the sense of social trust in money itself is rarely examined, but intensely mm. real. Like, okay, I'll give you a plastic card, you shove it into a slot, and then you're going to give me a cup of coffee and I walk away with it. Well, this is a trust in a system and we all trust that system. So um, there's still power in money. There's still power in government. They're sometimes in collusion. They're sometimes fighting each other for control. This is uh, so macro that um, when you re reduce it down to a couple questions like, what do I do as a citizen? to try to change things or for me how do i tell a story that that turns this into characters with decisions to make that matter to them and to others well that's where you have these you might call them problems of translation from the biggest picture that seems to present some possible avenues for hope you know, places to store your hope 
to the micro of, well, what do I do now? Or what story do I tell? And really, what, what do I do now? That's a story you tell yourself that you then try to act out. It's hard. It's these, these are the, um, this is why there's so much discussion going on. <laughs> it's uh, endlessly discussable. Yeah. There seems to be this awareness of, you know, okay, well, we know what we, sh we have to do then. Like we know what the horizon looks like. We can see goodness on the horizon. We can see how introducing degrowth uh, would benefit the biosphere and it would benefit humankind and our, men our mental health and all this kind of thing. You know, we can see how moving away from neoliberalism and consumerism would also would equally be beneficial. We can see how um, rebuilding cities to A, stand the test of time and B, invite nature to be in harmony or in tandem with us when again, the benefits are astonishing. So it's like we can see step C, but step B is invisible. And yeah. it's because power is invisible and it fundamentally involves wrestling back power. Yes, I think that's right. And I want to say that since you are in the UK and it's part of the discussion and maybe most of the listeners to this, that, um, well, the UK is a lot saner about all these issues than the United States. And maybe that's not saying very much, but it, um, it is really alarming to be in a country where um, a good 50% seem to be acting like maniacs. Um, denialists, religious fundamentalists who are just flatly in contradiction to any shared facts that you might share with them. That's a scary, dangerous political situation. And I sense it's a little better in the UK, partly because the Tory party early on said climate change is a problem, but we can fix it by our horrid, you know, um, 1% type means, and we're going to fix it that way. Um, the bio lords, as you call it, um, even that is better than having 50% of your population say, oh, the problem doesn't exist at all and mm. God will save us. And by the way, we don't like you. And I mean, we just finished an election where a um, highly intelligent and compassionate reverend of the relatively conventional and non-crazy church managed to beat a um, ex-football player who's... Uh, thoughts are quite scrambled and has no qualifications whatsoever in a semi-criminal past and beat them like why by one percent yeah um, by just a few thousand votes so we're in a 50 50 split here that means that effective action you know political action is getting that working majority is harder than hell and and yet we have had a working majority slightly since 2020 didn't look likely when i wrote ministry for the future to tell you the truth and so some good things are happening that if you tag them as Keynesianism, where government is somewhat taking the reins of the economy for the good of all, as a name for that, because uh, Keynes was so insistent that that was what was going to get people out of World War One, they didn't pay attention to him, and you, uh, the the settlement out of World War One was a catastrophe. Then out of the out of the depression and the New Deal was the result of Keynes's suggestions, ultimately. And, you know, World War II, of course, was a, a different picture entirely. But when Keynesianism lost to neoliberalism, then we really um, gave power over to the 1% in a rather astonishing way. 
how did it happen? Why did it happen? Well, that remains to be unpacked. And really, that's historical. It happened one way or another. And it was partly because they told a story that convinced ordinary citizens. Oh, government isn't the name of the solution. Government's the name of the problem. And so the people's own company was suddenly cut off at the knees. So telling the story really, really does matter for people's cognitive mapping, for their decisions as to what to do and how to be a citizen. We're in a wicked battle, for sure, on multiple levels. And one of them is simply discursive, trying to convince enough other people that that your macro story is not only right, but persuasive and giving some agency, some things we can do. I've spoken to some uh, narrative experts on this show and some scientists who are studying uh, activism and what needs to happen. And the consensus is we need a decentralized activist movement because you need different people doing different things at different places but with one coherent message. And to me, I extrapolate that as like, we need a story. We need a story for where we are and we need a story for where we're going. And one that like breaks through the sort of facile attractiveness of right-wing mania, which is just everything is fine and you deserve everything that you have and vote for me and I'll keep it safe for you. Um, And so when dealing with the climate crisis, and I want to speak to you about this within the context of Ministry for the Future, when the problem is so nuanced and complex, when it's a wicked problem, how do you develop a story that is coherent and that will attract people, that will that people will want to repeat? And the thing that I found so I found so interesting about Ministry for the Future was how complex it is. I mean, mm-hmm. the amount of times I was sitting on the sofa reading on it, reading it and then turned around to my partner and was like, you just will not believe how much information is in this. Like, there's so much science, there's so many ideas, there's the economy, there's just theories of everything, everything I knew about the climate crisis and then more you had managed to put into this book about how we would deal with it. I mean, <laughs> you've, I mean you've probably the person in the world that's laid out the biggest and most complex and nuanced plan in the form of a novel. How, I mean, how, 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 how do we do that? <laughs> how do we implement well, that? The novel itself is capacious and powerful form. And it's, it's designed from the start to give a sense of the totality and the individual's relationship to the totality. So this is the kind of classic pre-modernist novel, uh, Balzac or George Eliot, uh, magnificently. Um, The novel is a meaning creator where you read it and you say, oh, that's how I fit in. That's how everything fits together. So I have uh, the advantage of the novel as being my form. And Mm. it can go on and on and on. And people like a story that doesn't stop. It's like Scheherazade. Now... For me this time, I thought, well, let's make it messy. Uh, The suggestion would be that the near future is going to have a lot of disasters, a lot of bad decisions, a lot of defeats for people who are trying to um, um, increase justice and save the biosphere. That in that mess, you might, that might be the cross trop on top of a tide that's moving in a good direction. And this, I think, is why the book has been has had the effect it's had, why it appeals to people. You read it and your reality principle is not broken. 
by the sense that, oh, things are too neat, people are too convincible here. Um, that would never happen. This is what you read most utopian novels and you're reading it going, well, that's nice, but that'll never happen. Yeah. So I wanted deliberately, you know, 106 short chapters, every possible kind of genre, although I want to say the crucial one is the eyewitness account, people in the first person saying what they saw. So it does particularize in the way that you were, you mentioned, uh, localized to the individual. This thing happened. I saw it. This is why it was important. That's the main genre of ministry for the future. There's probably 30, 30 or 40 eyewitness accounts in the book. But by and large, it's a mess. It's a melange. It's a bricolage. It's a, it's a collage of effects and genres. And a lot of bad things happen in it. But at the end, we still have managed to sh shove civilization by intense effort over 30 years to a, a place where we've dodged the mass extinction event. So a very low bar for success, but crucial bar that we don't cause a mass extinction event. And then the, the following generations can pick it up from there and hopefully do even better. Hmm. Well, it's, it's a missing story, as you pointed out. We don't have many stories like this. If they're positive, they look Pollyannish or they look, I mean, very often when I'm being called uh, optimistic, I know that's code for he's a bit naive and stupid. Um, so optimism itself is not cool and doesn't seem very um, useful given the emergency that we're in. So all these things had to just be thrown in the hopper and, and stirred. And this is another thing about the novel. I could try it. It's a mess. It gets published. It gets discussed. And this time, rather amazingly so. But I could always go back and try again later. So no one novel has to solve the whole problem. And, and maybe this is suggestive. No one story and also no one law, no one moment in history has to solve all problems um, all at once that we're in a process here and we're going to have to keep um, pushing. Yes. The, the ecosystem of solutions. Um, yeah, I completely agree. But I think what is interesting is that you did manage to describe that ecosystem through the arc of a story, which is quite an achievement because multiple things, I'm wondering if I should give more context for listeners here who might who might not have read your book yet. Um, mm. But essentially, rather than following one, rather than it being, uh, gosh, rather than really it being plot-driven or character-driven, it's driven by what needs to happen. It's driven by the shadow of, of the crisis. Um, and so the, you're introduced to lots of different characters and lots of different narrators who are dealing with different parts of it. Um, and perhaps centering slightly around one character who is the head of this ministry for the future, which is this um, non-governmental organization that's set up to work in tandem with governments to represent the, the unborn generations and to safeguard the future. Yeah. Right. Well, it's kind of Mary Murphy, this Irish woman politician, is kind of a, a device that stands in for a lot of people. It could stand in for any reader. Um, who, there are a lot of people working for the interests of other people and for the people of the future and for wild animals. Very important to uh, mention. And, and so uh, somewhat of a literary device, although there are people at the UN who are in those specific positions. But as you pointed out earlier, you would need the local. And there, that was hard. And that's where the eyewitness accounts come in. What you 
in technical terms, could say a novel with low protagonicity, that there's not one protagonist saving everything, although there is a central character. Because being a novel, you care about characters and plot. So the novel has a characters, a couple of them, and then and then an, an enormous number of minor characters that come and go. That's um, not unusual in certain kinds of novels. And then it has a plot, which is the ongoing attempt to dodge the mass extinction event. Well, this is that's why it's science fiction and not domestic realism. That's a weird plot. Um, but it's also one that people were hungry for. Uh, so it, 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 uh, filled a, a missing, an empty niche in the, in our cultural ecology. And that's great. I, I'm happy to do it. Uh, it was the end of, you know, I've written maybe, I don't, something like 15 novels, maybe 20. And so I had tried everything I could think of and nothing had been particularly plausible even to myself they were i would try and then i would think well but it wouldn't be that way so ministry comes at the end of a long process of of um pondering how to tell a story um how to keep it positive how to do utopia when we're really on that very brink of complete catastrophe um a strange project but obviously from the response that the book has gotten it's something that people want it yeah Absolutely. Well, what you just said about it not having one main one main character and that character saving everyone. I think another thing that's fascinating about the book is how it documents the relationships between states and citizens and uh, independent groups and non-governmental groups and mm. lone sort of lone eco-terrorists and then, you know, other community self-forming communities. It really does show that it's an all hands on deck situation and that we it will require an element of luck or chance or coincidence, certainly willingness um, and a diversity of uh, ideas and a diversity of hope and equally a diversity of cynicism. I mean, the thing that I found really fascinating was the the, the plot point about the Ministry for the Future having a sort of shadow organization that the leader did not know about that was conducting certain pushing certain buttons illegally because simply they needed to be pressed um Mm -hmm. and it really highlights uh as i as i said just sort of the the necessity the necessity that it's going to have to come from everyone all at once essentially um yeah, I think that's right. And be, and the Ministry for the Future itself, if you really look at it hard, there are already UN ministries that are just like it, and they're obviously not having much effect. So that's a that's clearly not sufficient to have an organization devoted to defending people of the future. That doesn't that wouldn't do the job. So then there's also uh, I know it's Chapter eighty five because people are always. Um, quoting it back to me, just a list of small local organizations around the world that are working for their particular um, watershed and the animals in their area. And I just took that list off of a Google Maps that exists today. All those organizations already exist. Um, And that is one gesture at the local. If I was to tell every one of those stories, I mean, it's already a long novel. It would have been, you know, five times longer and been unwieldy at best. So you can only suggest that stuff and say, well, there should be a novel about each one of these organizations, their particular battles, 
it's interesting to talk about this in the UK and about and in Britain, the island that you're on. The rewilding movement has some momentum there, intellectual coherence, um, money, land, all being devoted to this concept of rewilding. And it makes sense because you're in a kind of post-industrial and semi-agricultural. It's a, maybe this is true everywhere on earth, but it can, it can be done without um, disabling human civilization's operations. And in fact, it's a, a huge addition to our, our biosphere health. Uh, so it's actually helping us to do this stuff. And there's a, um, Britain is one of the leaders worldwide in this movement of rewilding, which is also in my novel because I feel that it's important along with finance and um, local uh, resistance, all of the things that I threw into the book. It, 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 obviously, it, I was feeling kind of crazy when I wrote it. 2019 was an extremely stressed out year. Mm. And the, the, I can see the 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 sort of desperation the the formal or structural desperation of ministry for the future is very obvious to me and i had giant lists of things that needed to be included in it and getting them into an order was nearly impossible in a, in a way the order of the chapters wasn't really very important um, i decided in the end which is, took a lot of stress off me mm-hmm. but it, it is an everything story so how do you tell the everything story and organize it then there needs to be, I suppose, a politics or an ideology that this is a case of public over private. This is where governments have to come in. Or an organization like Mondragon, uh, workers' cooperatives, the employee-owned worker cooperatives that we get away from, from the 1% and from investors and from uh, shareholders, shareholder value as a, as a rubric of success. This is ridiculous that, that we need a, a political economy that that is adequate to the problem we've created. Well, it, uh, you know, I don't have to write it again, so the, I'm glad at that. <laughs> what are you working on next? Because I assume. Well, I would say nothing. Um, I'm I'm working on the ministry for the future. I'm, I'm doing things like this um, all the time, and it's probably my job right now just to talk about that book and to stay out of its way in the sense of not writing something else that then becomes my latest. I don't think that's, um, it's not the right moment for that. I'm out of ideas. I really put everything that I had ever thought or knew into ministry. And so I'm taking a break. I did write a, a book about the Sierra Nevada of California during the pandemic that was part memoir, part history, part geology, a nonfiction book. Well, I'm not a nonfiction writer. For me, this was a kind of a a way to say that ministry is going to be my last novel for a while, and until I think up something worth writing, I'll just let it let it be stand for what I'm thinking about right now. So uh, it's making me nervous. I mean, I'm writing poems. That's always a sign that I'm nervous, <laughs> and that, and that I want to write, uh, and something will come to me. I don't want to freak out my editor, who, after all, is in London. Um, I will get to something someday, but I'm not actively working right now. Mm. It's quite interesting to think about. Um, Obviously, the role of art is fundamental in creating new societies, in envisioning better, in driving progress. 
art within a capitalist structure where publishing houses or galleries or whatever just churn out as much as possible in order to maximize profit it's quite an interesting idea you've had essentially to not do another in order to give the book space to permeate the fabric of society now and I've seen like cli-fi climate fiction really sort of taking off in the past few years and it's wonderful um and yet I wonder and I wonder if this is elitist of me to even wonder it but do we need uh as much diversity of story as we do is it actually not particularly diverse the range that we have because it will typically be white global north authors who are uh, platformed or do we need some sort of shining examples not just of fiction but of well-researched documentation like Ministry of the Future um, that is scientifically accurate to to shine through like a like a lighthouse in a storm and say well this is how it could be well, this is a good question that everybody is wrestling with in in the publishing industry. It is an industry. It's part of it's a capitalist project to make profit for its shareholders. And yet it's made of stories. So there are and that's not unusual to have these cross cut of motives that is semi working against each other and yet you still have to do something. Um, I've seen the world of science fiction be almost completely overtaken by the world of fantasy. That would have an interesting psychological diagnosis of uh, younger people giving up on science and just wishing to have a magic wand or a sword they could chop off a, a black villain's head with and solve all problems. In other words, an urge for simplicity and for magical solutions and magical thinking. That Seeing that take over has been alarming to me as a, as a kind of a, a, a realist and a science fiction and in other words, that there's going to be a real future. You can tell stories about hypothetical futures that will shape the real future where the laws of physics still obtain. That would be my definition, but it's a fuzzy border and you can't dictate what other writers write and the publishing industry has to let a hundred flowers bloom and see what people like. So uh, my, my community, and this is very much... Um, an Anglophone thing. In other words, there's a, a there's a really big a British science fiction community and another big one in the United States. That community has been embracing diversity and realizing that it was a um, it was a dominated by a, a bunch of white guys, older white guys, men who were engineers in their background. And that began to blow up with the feminists um, taking over in the 1970s. And I mean taking over the discourse of what made sense and where the, where the most exciting stories were, uh, were coming from and what they were about. And that's gone on, but it's gained power in these last 10 years to the point where, well, as, a, as an older white guy, all I can really do is cheer and say, you know, that was what we were thinking back in the beginning when I was young. This is kind of uh, hippie values coming back. People shake their head at that, like you've got to be kidding. But history is malleable and is constantly changing in people's heads. I say there was a moment that was intensely revolutionary in the, the new wave science fiction between, say, 1965 and 1975. Then, along with Reagan and Thatcher, came this kind of reactionary um, 
defeatist science fiction, uh, um, sometimes called cyberpunk. Well, well, corporations are going to win. Just find your little corner of the mean streets and get what you can. And that that was a dispiriting, and science fiction kind of lost its way, and fantasy came in to replace it. Let's just cut their heads off. So I have a macro story for even my own field that is very personal. But what I can say is that now it has blown up. There are scores of writers with scores of stories coming at it from every possible angle, trying to say we can make a better world. In other words, I think utopia keeps rising to the top. This, The story of things getting better is something that people are hungry for, and so people keep writing it one way or another. And sometimes it does feel like magical thinking. Other other times it's like social planning. Mm. God, fascinating. I'm so buzzing with <laughs> ideas and questions. Um, and I wish I could monopolize your entire day. Uh, I'm obsessed with the idea that it is story that will unlock the key to the future. Um mm. And I'm also completely obsessed with science fiction. I wrote a science fiction novel when I was 21 and mad at capitalism. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how it is. Stan, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for making time uh, to come and speak to me. Well, my pleasure, Rachel. And um, have fun over there. I love London. I love the London Review of Books, my principal source of education. I, um, I, I love being on your island when I get there. And I uh, hope to come back um, before too long. Things are happening there. Good things. Mm-hmm. So it's fun to be uh, connected with them. And that's one thing. All the good things that are happening, they they, they kind of want to get in touch because uh, I've become like the scribe of record because of ministry. So um, that's been very um, encouraging. And in the literal sense, it, it's giving me courage. Everybody should take courage. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree with you. The more that I do this show and the more science I learn and the reality that I learn that we are in a very dangerous position equally. Every Mm -hmm. week I get to speak to people who are working on the problem, committed to the problem and are in a network of people working on it for the, the, the sort of greater good and for the safety of us all. And if that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what will. Yeah. And we need it, and we're good at it. Hope is very resilient, very small scale, very resilient. So, yeah, on we go. On we go. My final question for you is, who would you like to platform? Well, like a minister for finance, I would love to see Thomas Piketty made our minister of finance. I'm very impressed by his analyses and his suggestions, which are very Keynesian, but um, for our time. Uh, Johan Rockstrom of the Potsdam Institute, he should be our minister of um, the biosphere. Okay. Um, and it goes on like that. Um, there are there are good people out there, as you said, working on these problems at the cutting edge and teaching the rest of us. They have good communication skills in terms mm-hmm. of being teachers. And they're good. They're they're actually up to the present, which I must say is very hard to do. So, um, yeah, we're lucky to have these people. Wonderful. Stan, thank you so much. You bet. If you want to read Stan's books, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly essays inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. 
As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.